The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I'm fairly certain it's Wednesday, and if indeed it is, happy Wednesday to you all, and welcome to another episode of Fantasy NBA Today. I am your host, Dan Baspris. This is a hoop ball presentation. You guys know all the, the spiel stuff at the beginning, don't you, by now? I actually can't really operate that way. That is very much an opening that I should be saving for June and July. It's September 1st. We're in, it's not countdown mode on uh, this podcast. It's count up mode to October 19th, start of the NBA season. We're really, uh, we're like frightfully close now. What is that, 30, 50, 50 days to the start of the NBA season? That's crazy. And probably more like 40 to your fantasy draft, maybe at like 45, 46 at the very largest number. Please don't draft like the day before the season starts because you'll, it's confusing. I know that sometimes you don't have any choice. Um, the later you go though, I will, I will say this before we dive into stuff on today's podcast, the later you go in draft season, there's very much like a two peak thing that you should keep in mind. Should you have any control over when your league is drafting this season push for extraordinarily early or extraordinarily late what you don't want is the in-between the in-between which i believe uh was pioneered by the the original kitten mittens on always sunny the in-between is the worst of all worlds meaning you have most of training camp but not all of it so there's still time left for somebody to get hurt or for them to be like, oh, by the way, we were just playing with you here the first week of training camp. This guy is actually the starter on the team. And the other ones, every like early and late have their advantages. Early is you can sort of beat everybody to the punch. ADPs aren't out yet. You go get your guys. You don't have to worry about public perception all that much. You just worry about what other people in your league specifically are doing. Not going to get pulled in any one hard direction by other data, and then very late is you have all the information you need. You're not going to have quite as many deep sleeper types available if you draft at the last second, but you are going to know who's hurt at the start of the year. And for me, personally, I actually prefer that. You guys have listened to this show long enough to know that for us, avoiding disaster is more important than striking gold in this. Like, you're, you're, you're in a, a, a mine, a gold mine, but the gold mine has explosives buried in it in addition to gold. And the longer you wait, the more the mine gets cleared out effectively. At the very beginning, there are a ton of explosives and a ton of gold in the mine. So you're just swinging your pickaxe willy-nilly. You'll probably get more gold, but you'll also probably hit some complete disasters. You'll draft somebody, if you have your draft we like next week, Early September, someone on your team is probably going to suffer a catastrophic injury during training camp. Something terrible. But the longer you wait, the more everything gets cleared out. Yeah, people are going to pull some of the gold mines out, but people are also going to pull most of the explosives out of this metaphor. So at the end, you're left with some gold, a lot of very decent ore, whatever other stuff you might find in a mine, Again, very few mysterious explosives at the last second. I like drafting late. Eliminate the uncertainty. 
I'm okay with there not being as much gold because I still feel like I don't. I'm, I'm going to lose the metaphor thread here for a minute. But when you look at it from the Dan Vespers Old Man Squad perspective, which is who are these guys that are falling too far? Most people wouldn't classify those guys as gold. That's like some weird other thing in the gold mine that you're working on. It's like, oh, awesome. I didn't even have to hit the wall with my pickaxe. Here's a piece of gold on the ground, but nobody was looking at the ground because everybody was just whacking away at the walls. There, that's a stretched, that metaphor is stretched until the rubber band's about to snap, but I think you guys were able to hang with me on that one. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Vespers. Please do so. We are, again, in count-up mode, which I think also pertains to social media. Last month, August, was our biggest listening month since May, which tells you people are starting to come back. This is going to be a big one. October is going to be insane. That's the way it always is. Mega month. At least when the season actually starts in October. Last year was kind of a weird one. So welcome back. If you're joining us today for the first time in a while, welcome back. Happy September, everybody. Follow HoopBall on Twitter at HoopBallFantasy. And please, if you have a moment, drop a five-star review on the podcast. We're going to start asking you guys for those again. Anybody that hasn't done one on iTunes or the podcast app on your mobile device, as we again do these 50 days of count-up to the season, this is when we need you guys hitting the subscribe button, dropping the five-star review. It's when we can kind of power boost the podcast and rocket up the charts so more people see it when they're just screwing around on the various podcast app show pages. I don't even really know how that works anymore. I haven't done it in a while. We left off. It's the way we're going to do all of our, a lot of our stuff. We left off at Jonathan Isaac. He was the last name we talked about on yesterday's podcast. He was effectively number 43 on our board. I think I mistakenly wrote 44 in yesterday's show title. 44 is Jonas Valanciunas for me. And the reason we stopped on him is because I I think that he could end up being a big chunk of this show. And I didn't want to run yesterday's too long. These are sort of our last opportunities before we started getting into mock drafts a little bit more. We'll have some more guests on the podcast coming up in the next few weeks. These are the last opportunities to have kind of quick, bite-sized programming. So here's the thing on JV. Valanciunas finished last year at number 31 in Memphis. 28 minutes a game, he averaged 17 and 12 and a half. Two assists, half a block, or sorry, half a steal, one block. 59% medium volume from the field. That's really solid. 77% at the free throw line, which is totally fine from your center. Blocks were not good in the first half, trended up in the second half, and he just very quietly had a fantastic fantasy season at again sitting right on the edge of the top 30. The trade from Memphis to New Orleans means a couple of things for JV. Number one, usage is probably going to go down a little bit. Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson combined from a usage standpoint are probably going to chew up a little bit more than uh, John Morant and Dylan Brooks. And on top of that, Morant's going to be a better passer to a big guy like JV than Ingram or Zion. If for no other reason, then Morant is going to be working slightly farther from the bucket than Zion Williamson is, or really anybody on the Grizzlies that we just named is going to be working farther from the bucket than anybody on the Pels that we just named. And I know Ingram can shoot the three ball a little bit. He's not terrible from downtown. He's expanded that part of his game, and he did hit 2.3 threes per game last year, did Brandon. So he can move out a little bit, and he can orchestrate a little bit. But here's the thing. Lonzo Ball was the guy on the Pels that was probably going to be the best fit with Valanciunas. Not because JV can run the break all that well with with, 
uh, Lonzo, but because he's a guy who creates and then looks to pass. Ingram had five assists per ball game. That's fine. That's good, but it's not going to blow the roof off the building. Zion had 3.7. That's not that great. That's not that great. And so when you compare that to a guy like, say, John Morant, who's always going to be trying a gun for seven, eight assists per ball game, it's just going to be a little bit slightly tougher sledding for JV to get shots in the rhythm of the offense. If they give him the ball in the post, he can go in there and he can get his looks. He's going to get his putbacks because guys are going to draw attention. But also, look, Zion did a lot of his damage on putbacks. Zion's going to get a lot of his own offensive rebounds and mistakes. That pulls away from whatever it is that JV might be able to do. Still, I have JV only dropping about one round in value because I don't think his playing time changes that much. He's something the Pelicans needed, which is basically Steven Adams, but with any offensive game at all. So he'll be out there. He'll get his rebounds, even if they suffer a little bit. His shots will suffer a little bit. Everything's going to come back to earth with JV at least some small amount, but I pull him back only about a round because I do think that his blocks probably go up this coming year. The way that the Pels have never really played defense is going to force big men to get in there and just try to do something at the rim. Yes, I'm a little bit concerned about JV picking up fouls, but what I'm not all that concerned about is a severe plummeting in actual playing time. They went out and they got Valanchunas, partly to, I think, get off the Eric Bledsoe contract, but they like JV, and he's going to give them something they haven't had, which is an actual bona fide center who can do things anywhere remotely close to the rim and isn't a massive liability at the free throw line. He's not going to be as good as he was last year. That's important to note. The 31 he put up on a per-game basis, uh, 27 by totals, yeah, no. But again, if we're going by totals, it's really a round and a half dropping him back because I do think that he's shown himself to be, outside of the big injuries, JV tends to play through stuff. He's on a team that really wants to make a push towards that play-in tournament at the very least. I think the Pels are pretty upset about being on the outside looking in year after year. So he's going to be out there anytime he can go. Uh, I I think he's going to have some fun with this club. Again, his shots are not going to be quite as easy to come by. But the Pels do get up and down the floor. Things are going to be kind of helter-skelter, willy-nilly style. Even if he takes a small hit, it won't be that large. So I still have him inside the top 50. Still, as we go back up to our buckets, I can't possibly in good conscience throw him into, say, a bucket 11 with Shea and LaMelo Ball because of the potential... And, and here's where we can run into this stuff with these podcasts. Can I, can I make the public perception adjustment before we even know what the public feels about a guy? I, th- I feel like we can, because JV's just not going to go as early as, say, uh, Gilgis Alexander or a LaMelo Ball, even if these are guys that are all going to kind of finish around the same place. I believe. I actually think JV probably finishes in front of those guys, but... Can I put him up there with Ingram and Porzingis and Jalen Brown and Jonathan Isaac, even when you consider that he's probably going to take a small step back this year? I think he has to be one bucket back of those guys, at least for now. Next guy on the list is Miles Turner, and he's only not higher because of the injury bug. We've seen at this point that 
and I, I mean, he's coming off just an amazing partial season last year. Miles was number 13, remember, on a per-game basis, but he only played 47 ball games. And it's not that he's not a particularly durable player. He's He's been fine in that regard. Not overwhelmingly good, but fine until this year. He missed 25 ball games this season. Last year, he missed 10. Previous year, he missed 8. Year before that, he missed 17. Year before that, he only missed 1. And that was kind of the first year that he was really a starter in Indiana. His shot blocking is, is absolutely magical. And I've got to think that Rick Carlisle has a plan for him. Everybody's got a plan for how Miles Turner and uh, Demonis Sabonis can coexist on the court. And this last season was probably about as good as an example of those guys coexisting as you could possibly imagine. And it's still things kind of devolved on Indiana. But look, Miles Turner's a guy where if he gets 30 minutes of ball game, he's going to be blocking pretty damn close to three shots a night. That's kind of that's kind of insane, which means that his floor is ridiculously high because you almost don't have to do anything else if you're blocking that many shots per ball game. You don't if you block three shots per game and you do almost nothing else, you're still basically inside the top 30. He blocked three shots per game, and Miles Turner was a net positive in only one, two, if you count turnovers, other statistical categories, and that one was rebounds at 6.5, barely over league average. And really, for a center or a big man, actually kind of sub-average. But he got one steal, which is good also for a big guy. 48% 48% from the field, 78% at the free throw line. Nothing he did was all that terrible other than the one assist per night. Basically what we saw was a guy who was sub-average in assists, slightly sub-average in points, and then basically league average in threes, rebounds, steals, field goal percent, and free throw percent, and turnovers, and was the best player in the league at any one statistical category in blocks per game. No one else came even remotely close to the single impact he had in one category. And we've talked about it before. Somebody who's basically league average in every category is inside the top 75. That's all you have to do. In fact, you're, you're kind of, you're like a good deal inside of that. You're more like top 60 if you're league average in everything. So take the league average player last year, which was pretty much Al Horford, in everything. He was top 60 when he played. And instead crank up one category to five times the league average and boom top 60 becomes nearly a first rounder and as i talk about miles turner it occurs to me we may be too low on him with this marker at 45 and it's probably being weighed down by the fact that he just wasn't particularly healthy so this is a guy who i think probably needs to move up our board just in terms of where he finishes in total rank. Let's assume he misses more like 14, 15 games this year instead of 25. Uh, that that probably keeps him inside the top 40. Still, 45 is not like we have him all that low. I think I got to move him in front of the guys that are liable to be shut down for the year. So Miles Turner, to me, should probably be more like a bucket 10 kind of guy with Brandon Ingram, Porzingis, Brown, Isaac, those guys. Uh, he doesn't have to be that great at anything other than blocks. Next player. Let's keep chugging along here. I don't want to 
waste anybody's time. Tyrese Halliburton at number 46. He's young, which I know you guys are sort of weirded out when when I go that route <laughs> at, at, any, at any juncture along the way. But he showed the kind of youth poise that we're not really accustomed to, which was top 65 on a per-game basis and improved as the year went on. His role got bigger as the season progressed. And that's a good sign. Even if his field goal percent was actually sort of trending backwards a little bit down the stretch, I'd have to chalk a lot of that up to fatigue. If his role grows on the Kings this coming year, his rank should grow with it. So assuming this last year, Halliburton, who again, hanging around right near that 60 mark on a per-game basis, and wasn't, believe it or not, all that hyper-durable. played 58 out of their 72 games. Kings want to gun for it. They want to gun for it. They're young, but they're tired of losing. So Halliburton's going to play a bunch. I believe his usage rate is going to increase this season because it wasn't super high last year. He took only 10.5 shots per game. Let's see that get up to like a dozen. Uh, On a per-game basis, climbing from 65 to about 50 is not all that hard for a guy learning to do a little bit more. And then, say he's just a hair more durable than league average, well, that gets him to 46 pretty fast. I am generally a bit concerned that after a great rookie season, he's just the kind of guy to get overdrafted, which makes it hard for me to say we should attack this dude. Because if he gets drafted in the fourth round, you kind of wipe out a lot of his value. And so then you start looking at the guys you have in your bucket so far. Would I rather have JV or Halliburton? JV. Would I rather have the mellow ball or Halliburton? It'd be ball. Shea or Halliburton? That one's pretty close, but I'd probably go Shea just because of what he's going to be allowed to do and the hope that his shutdown is only like 10 ball games. And for Halliburton, his way to big-time success is to play like 77 out of 82 games this year. Because on a per-game basis, those guys are probably going to beat him up. So I'm going to drop him back into the Kyle Lowry bucket, which is bucket 12 for us right now, because I'm less high. I, I Like, I'm high on him, as you can hear, to have him inside the top 50, but I think I'm less high on him than others, and I feel like we need to see the durability, which we didn't last year. I'm kind of assuming it's actually in there, and we don't necessarily know that it is. So I might even move him down two slots just while we're thinking about it here. And then we can reassess later on. Again, like I said, we're going to do a lot of moving here. I I hope that you guys are following along, but not like writing names down in Sharpie as we go through this. Because I'm going to move probably 80% of the names on this list are going to get shuffled around a little bit. This is very much a first pass that I did, not this last weekend, but the weekend before. And we've been working through it together, making those adjustments together. And then we're going to have to make adjustments as we get public data, as we learn about injury stuff, as we learn about training camp roles, things of that nature. And there's still guys that could be on the move here towards the end. Ben Simmons, a big one, and whoever comes back to Philly in that potential trade. Next player on the list, which now becomes 46 because we moved Halliburton down, is Draymond Green, who I believe ends up having a really nice season this year and quietly actually had a really good season this last one as well. Draymond, right under the radar, was number 43 by totals. So the fact that we have him moved down just a little bit, like I may reassess that also 
I would have uh, preferred Draymond over Tyrese Halliburton, who we just talked about, which is one of the reasons that I got to move these guys around a little bit. I, like, I could see Green ending up inside the top 40 by totals because I think he's going to play a lot this season. He's going to need to play real hard the first two months before Clay Thompson comes back. And then he's actually a guy who kind of gets better the more good players you put around him. He can slot back into doing the stuff he prefers to do as opposed to slightly outside of his comfort zone. So Draymond, to me, probably belongs in bucket 11 ahead of some of those last couple of guys we talked about. And uh, we'll leave him there because, like, he's just a guy that does a lot of everything. He's not going to excite you if you're in head-to-head, but he's he's just generally good at stuff. And I think we I think we have to kind of just assume that he's still Dre. Next name on the list, by the way, we'll just keep going here, is Devin Booker. I could almost make the argument he should be lower, but I started to feel bad about the idea of taking him outside the top 50 this year, which I don't think I should feel bad about because this last season we saw him land at number 49. I'm basically just saying he has the same exact season again. He's going to be wildly overdrafted because he scores a ton. Nobody seemed to care about the fact that his season was a fat disappointment this last year, and I'm going to put him in bucket 12 with Halliburton and Kyle Lowry because everybody else that I've said so far, I would rather have ahead of Devin Booker. He's one that I see here on the list, and I don't even think twice about saying, yep, everybody other we've every name we've said so far belonged in front of him. And here's another relatively young player, Anthony Edwards, in his second season in the NBA. He is also going to be a very hot commodity on draft day. He was someone who came on so strong in the second half of the season, played in all 72 ball games, so he got a big-time totals bump this year. But the most important thing I think we really need to be paying attention to on Edwards is if you look at his last 25 games, he was number 42. I don't think he's a guy who's going to see his usage suffer all that much, even with the Wolves, you know, most likely, coming into this season healthy. They're going to give him things to do, and he has what appears to be a growing and robust fantasy game. And he's a guy that, if this was a podcast that ever suggested taking some risks, he would be a risk to take. Because over those last 25 games, this most recently completed season, which had to be because it's his only one, he shot 47% from the field and 78% at the free throw line. So some of the things that we were that rightfully worried us about Edwards in the first half of the season, which mainly field goal percent was a complete disaster, that pretty much went away. He became a guy that was basically league average in the two percentages categories, and so all the good things he was doing were no longer being counterweighted by two terrible ones. Over those 25 games, he averaged 23 points, three threes, five boards, four assists, 2.1 combined defensive stats, and that's, I think, this, this 42 per game, not that far from where he ends up this coming season. He's going to get a lot of looks in a fun offense on a team that actually should be, I don't want to say good, but exciting at the very least. They're going to be fun to watch. He's going to be a big part of that. And if we assume his free throw percent gets better, because he was getting to the line at a pretty good clip, those last 25 games, five attempts per ball game. If he turns that into a positive, that pushes him inside the top 40, which could then kind of weight against 
the idea of him losing a little bit of usage as Malik Beasley, D'Angelo Russell, Carl Anthony Towns, all those guys are healthy and then playing together. I don't think we worry have to have to worry much about Pat Beverly taking stuff away from these dudes. So let's say the 23 points per game comes down to 20 or 21. Let's say the assist comes down from 3.8 to like 3.3 or 3.4. Yeah, these things do hurt and usage is value, but I also see some of the growth elements for him as a mitigating factor in that. It's not because he's going to be getting better looks. It's not that whole like, oh, well, maybe the efficiency will get better because he's playing with better teammates. This is just a super young dude who's getting better at the NBA. It's the end of the rookie year phenomenon. We've seen it a thousand times. It's part of why you can get away with drafting rookies in head-to-head, but not Roto, because by totals, they're not going to hit their mark. But in your head-to-head playoffs, sometimes the rookies actually are useful in the way that Edwards was at the end of last year. But here's why I have him uh, towards the end of the 40s. Again, he got that gigantic bump because of totals last year. Who knows if he plays in all 82 games this season? I'd be willing to bet almost nobody plays in all 82. Uh, He's going to get drafted probably in front of this spot, and maybe he takes a step forward in those percentages categories that we're thinking he probably does, but it's hard to see him getting more than 18 shots per game when the Wolves are healthy. So that 40 range is kind of a best-case scenario. When the team is healthy, somebody gets hurt. D'Angelo Russell misses two and a half months or something like that. Then all, you know, all bets are off at that point. Yeah. 18, 19 shots a game is still quite attainable for him. He could beat that area. And if you're banking on that, it's not insane because D'Lo misses a lot of time. Cat has lately, although I think we can probably at this point, hope at least that he's getting back towards healthy again. And then it's tough to know with Beasley. He never got his conditioning back after the suspension. He hurt his hamstring and, Never got to play again, but he'll take some shots this season as well. And that's why we got Edwards where we do. In terms of assigning him to a bucket in our scheme, we probably have to say, well, would we rather have him or like Shea? And I think the answer is Shea there. By the way, I'm getting very close to moving LaMelo Ball down a bucket. In fact, I think I probably will while we're talking about it. Because I don't, I, while his upside is insane, I do think that some of the downside stuff is going to creep into the mix. So let's go ahead and move LaMelo down uh, with these other guys while we're talking about them. And that, to me, is probably where Anthony Edwards ends up as well. So he's going to go in bucket 12. Bucket 11 is shrinking on us a little bit. Maybe somebody gets shifted back up there in time, but not right now. And with that, we move on. Player number 50 that we've talked about so far is the great Rob Covington. You guys know he's been one of my favorites in fantasy for a very, very long time. His role in Portland is not the same. There's no question about that. He finished, he was number 53 on a per-game basis, but he did play in 70 out of 72 ball games. He's still going to play a ton of minutes on a team that now has Larry Nance, so they have kind of a, a little bit of a defensive unit if they wanted to play Rocco and Nance at the same time. Covington's not going to take many shots, The goal with him is to get back to what he did this year, which is top 50 range and extraordinarily durable. He's also not going to be a guy who gets drafted particularly high. So I'm going to put him in bucket 12 right now with the understanding that once public data comes out, we can almost definitely move him down into bucket 13 or maybe even 14, depending on how many players end up in that 13th bucket. Oh, before we do our last couple of players, I wanted to let everybody know there's actually another 
odds boost going on at mybookie.ag. I almost missed it. It starts tomorrow. I'm so very sorry I didn't get you this information sooner. It's a five-pack of odds boosts on college football starting. They were kind of late. They only introduced this odds boost yesterday. It almost feels like my bookie forgot to do it until the last minute. Uh, But there's five of them. Ohio State-Minnesota game, Michigan State-Northwestern, Penn State-Wisconsin, Alabama-Miami, and Georgia-Clemson. In each one of those games, this is actually pretty similar to what we saw my bookie do um, with their college football last season, which was basically take college football games and move the spread by about a touchdown in the better's favor. This isn't quite... The September 9th football NFL kickoff one, which is basically like a 99.9% chance that one hits. That's free money. This one, if you assume that spreads over a million games end up at about a 50-50 clip, getting a touchdown, whatever that happens to be, whether it's the side or the total, getting seven points against the actual consensus line bumps your chances of winning from 50% up to more like 75% or something in that neck of the woods. You start to clear out some of the room on the bell curve. But if you get a 75% chance of winning, you take it every damn time. Like it's just, it's not even, we shouldn't even have to talk about it. Uh, Ohio State, Minnesota, for instance, in fact, I think they only moved this one down by five points, if I'm not mistaken. So you're getting... Some boost, it's not quite as ridiculously juicy as some of the stuff they've done in the past, but you still kind of have to take it. Now, like Michigan State and Northwestern, for instance, uh, Northwestern is a three-point favorite in the consensus line. The boosted line, they're a three-and-a-half-point underdog. So you're basically getting a touchdown. You're moving through both field goals, which is really big deal in football bets. So that's a really good deal. These are all $25 max bets. I'm almost definitely just going to blindly flat bet all five of them. And all we need to do is win three out of the five and we're up money. And when you, when you have a 60 to 80% chance on five bets, the hope is that you'll win at least three of them. That's the hope. And maybe the difference is you would have split them. You assume that your five bets would have gone like two and a half and two and a half. And if you move all of them by a touchdown, then that two and a half and two and a half should become three and two or maybe even four and one. If it loses, I mean, I'd be floored if it went any worse than two and three, but this is still a pretty good odds boost. And you can go through and you can check some of the boosted lines against the original ones. I'm trying to do that on the fly here, but it's not, it's not all that easy. Uh, Alabama, for instance, 19 and a half point road favorite in Miami. Uh, that's been dropped to 13 and a half. So they moved it six points and they moved it through the two touchdown mark. That's a big deal. So these are these are really good odds boosts. These are going to boost your chances of winning your wager from 50-50 to probably 75 to 80%. And there's five of them. So get in there and get down on it. You can do it if you have an account already. If you don't, this is a wonderful time to open up an account. You're going to need to deposit probably 125 bucks to make all five of those $25 bets. I'm... Uh, looking at when these games happen. Actually, you know what? There's one tomorrow, one Friday, and three on Saturday. So by that account, you should only need $75 in your account. 
well, if the first two lose, then you might actually have to redeposit. But you could start with 75 or start with 25. Actually, there's a way to go. Start with 25, place the first odds boost tomorrow on the total Ohio State-Minnesota. If that one hits, you'll have about 50 bucks. You can put the 25 on Michigan State-Northwestern on Friday. If that one hits, you'll have pretty close to 75 bucks, and you can basically, minus the VIG, bet about 25 on each of those Saturday games. Which, by the way, I think the first one and the last one are like seven hours apart, so you don't actually need enough to bet on all three at the same time on Saturday. So there you go. You don't even have to put in 125. You can probably start with 25 apiece, do it again on the next day. But again, don't wimp out on these things, because now we've got six odds boosts between tomorrow and the ninth on football. Uh, one of them is basically a guarantee, and if the others go three and two, then you suddenly go four and two, and you're up 50 bucks. And if you go five and one, then you're up 100 bucks. And if you go six and oh, you're up $150 on these odds boosts. That is pretty damn good. I wouldn't expect it to go six and oh, but you never know. I'm gunning for four and two. Shouldn't we all win 50 bucks together over the next week while not having to even handicap these six games? Hell yeah, we should. It's mybookie.ag. Let's go get some free money together. This is not promo bucks, these are actual straight cash wagers. I'll be placing, and if we win 100 bucks, I'll probably take that $100 out, and I'll spend it on something here at home. I want to do, um, I think, two more players. Well, let's see how we're doing here. Christian Wood, I have at number 51. He's very much a coin-flippy kind of guy. He finished at 64 on a per-game basis and obviously missed about half the season with injury. He was a top 25 guy before the ankle thing, and an unmitigated free-throw disaster afterwards. And I'll be honest with you guys, I don't know which freaking Christian Wood we're going to get this year because we do know that his counting stuff is juicy as hell. He scores, he rebounds, he steals, he blocks. That stuff is all gravy. And he had two three-pointers a game this year. And we know his field goal percent is solid. And we know the turnovers are probably going to be higher this year than they have in the past or this last season and now this coming one because his job has gotten larger. What we don't know is where the free throw stuff is going to end up because in Detroit, two seasons ago, he shot 74% at the line. This year in Houston, this last year, he shot 63% and almost five free throws per ball game. That was a mess. I mean, he was one of the 10 worst impact free throw shooters in the NBA. And when you drafted him, I don't think we were all assuming he was going to be a punt free throw guy that was pretty good in a lot of categories, but not elite overwhelming good the way that like Rudy Gobert, who's bad at free throw shooting, but is just outstanding at rebounding and shot blocking and field goal percent can, again, tip the scales back in the right direction. Clint Capella tip the scales back in the right direction with Christian Wood the scales basically hit break even really bad free throw shooting and pretty good in a few different categories those evened out do we get a Christian Wood who shoots 70% at the foul line this year because if so he goes from top 65 to top 40 like that it's all hinging on the free throws I mean you can take his general statistical breakdown and call it like Pascal Siakam with a better field goal percent. Siakam shot 83% of the foul line, though. What about a guy like a John Collins? He was number 47, and counting stat-wise, Christian Wood was better 
than John Collins. But Collins shot 83% at the free throw line. So these are all the things that you're looking at Christian Wood. You're like, look, if he just gets decent at the foul line, he can be those guys, which is top 40, top 45, or even potentially a little bit better. If the free throws don't come back, then this is what he is. He's outside the top 60. So I have him at 51, which is kind of splitting the difference. He's going to still be buzzy this year. And he's, I think, the first guy we drop in bucket 13 on our list, simply because there's just so much uncertainty there that if we don't end up with him and someone else is cashing that ticket, that's fine. And the last name I want to talk about on today's show, Jaron Jackson Jr., who finished actually two slots, believe it or not, ahead of Christian Wood on a per-game basis in only 11 games playing at about 60% capacity. He should be higher. As I look at my list right now, Jaron Jackson Jr. should be higher. I put him at 52 because I thought maybe there might be a little bit of a discount on him. But he's, I mean, he's Kristaps Porzingis light. He's Jonathan Isaac light, but presumably he can last through the season. I don't know what the Grizzlies' plan is in terms of when they're going to play this dude, but uh, I'm going to move him up seven slots right now as, as we speak. Uh, and all the way up to number 45, with, by the way, I think he could go higher than that. 45 puts him right at the tail end of bucket 11 for us, and if you're not in a a league with Jonas Nader, does he fall into the 50s, 60s range? I I really don't know. But he feels like a true bounce-back, kind of dark horse, ultimate post-hype kind of dude, where, I mean, if things break the right way, like, the uh, the Jaron Jackson Jr. stuff this year, you, you very much look at the, okay, well, what about his first five games back? How did he do? What about the next three games back? How did he do? Here's what you guys need to know. Last five games of the regular season, Jaron Jackson Jr. averaged 26 minutes per game and four defensive stats per ball game and was inside. He was a second rounder. Like, he legitimately has second round upside especially as Memphis starts to retool here. Steven Adams is not the answer at center for that team. JJJ is probably going to have to play more center this year. I am tempted to move him into bucket 10, but we're going to leave him in 11 just for now until we find out how the public feels about this dude because I am genuinely excited about him as a post-type guy, but he needs to actually be post-type for that to make sense. All right, let's, get, let's go get our odds boost money down, guys. Let's go win some freebies together. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Please, again, do take a second to rate and review the pod. Hit the subscribe button. This is how we sort of exponential rocket boost up the charts. I need your help with that. I am Dan Bespris at D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S on Twitter. Have a lovely Wednesday, everybody. Back tomorrow, we'll continue our journey through the board. Bucket time here on the show continues on Thursday. Fantasy NBA Today. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you then. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.